0: so now we have time for questions hopefully questions related to what we were discussing so far in terms of uh, the aggregate of consciousness and the aggregate of forms of physical phenomena what questions might you have hopefully some
1: so clear examples especially with the computers I've been working with earlier Uh the zeros and ones and it's a very good example I think but I was wondering I might not be so clear because this is difficult but um, (coughs) when it comes to um, conceptions Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's I can understand that as soon as I get the concept like the flower there Whenever I say flower, then it's already something solid. But is it, um, it, it, it uh, you, I, I guess you can do the grasping without conceptions. And I then think about um, very, very small children or animals. I, I, I'm a lot around horses and they, they know what they want and what they don't and what they recognize and everything, but they, I guess they don't have concepts. Can you say
0: something about this? Uh, animals have concepts for sure the uh, they don't have words yeah. that are associated with the concepts concepts uh, we need to be a little bit more precise when we talk about uh, concepts what uh, because that's really a Western word what this is referring to uh, is mental activity with categories. Now there are two types of categories and they are very essential actually for uh, the operation of our mental faculties be able to understand things. One has to do with uh, um, objects and the other has to do with sounds basically. So, with objects, the category is, for example, um, apple. Well, you go into the store, and there are all these different items. And unless you have a category, apple, you don't know that all of these fit into that category. They're all apples, and the oranges don't fit into that category. So categories is how we are able to make sense of uh, what we experience. Otherwise, you know, there are all these creatures in front of me. Right? Well, they are, you know, if I don't have a category of human being, how do I know that they're all human beings? You know, how do I know? You you can't make any sense out of uh, what you know the information unless it is it is put into categories. The problem with categories is that they uh, give the impression that they are like boxes, and that things exist in boxes. You know, and the categories have definitions. And the definitions are basically made up by convention. And so are the boxes, for that matter. You know, these categories, especially if you think of categories like emotions. The category of love. Well, I feel love, you feel love. How do you know that it's the same emotion? You know, what I feel for my... Parents, what I feel for a girlfriend, what I feel for my dog, what I feel for the city that I live in. I mean, you call all that love. But, you know, what I experience and what you experience are quite different. And the difference, the example I'd love to use is uh, the category of uh, loving somebody and liking somebody. How do you know that it has gone over the border? to fit into the other category and in a relationship both people are going to have very different boundaries <laughs> of this category you know of how they define it but we use these categories in order to make sense of what we experience and the other cate- type of category are audio categories And without them, language wouldn't work. Communication would not be possible. How is it that when two different people make a sound, that you know that they're saying the same word, and you associate it with the meaning? You know, if uh, I say the word refrigerator, and I... Like food. So I'm always thinking of uh, food examples. If I say the example of uh, refrigerator, and you know, how do you know that each time that you hear that each person who says that, different voice, different volume, uh, different pronunciation, that they're all saying the same word? It's because there's an audio category that conceptually you with that hologram of the sound is attached to it that it fits in this category so that you understand that it's a word and by a convention it has a meaning otherwise it's just you know, a sound like uh, you hear whales making or horses making maybe the other horses understand it but we don't understand it So, categories are very important. Now, when we think of concept in English, then we're talking about much more than just a category, because then you're talking about uh, qualities, you know, what we would call judgmental qualities with it. The category that, you know, horses are... Beautiful and they are intelligent and they're, you know, so important and, and so on. But then somebody else can attach to it that, you know, they're afraid of horses, you know. It's going to bite me, it's going to whatever. So these, you know, when we think of concepts in the West, we're thinking of, you know, what is then added onto the categories. And that is uh, optional, really. Of uh, what are the qualities? What are the especially judgmental ones? They're relative. Large, small, beautiful, ugly—these are these are relative to the person's own sense of what is beautiful and what is ugly. So we shouldn't think that conceptual cognition is something which is uh, uh, by itself no good, a troublemaker. The troublemaking aspect of it is to think that things actually exist in the boxes, that they're concrete, that this is, you know, Or you know, this color or that color. Something like that. So if you think in terms of animals, you were asking about animals. Animal definitely has a, uh, a concept of uh, um, my barn, my stall where I live, my you know master, my friend, my child. They have a, a baby. They certainly have these concepts these categories. And they might not have, that's why I was saying that uh, the categories are always there, but whether or not there is a word associated with it is something else. But there is a significance associated with it. As in my stall, where I sleep for the horse, or my master who feeds me, there is a significance there. And that you find in, from the Buddhist point of view, all life forms that have a mind. they are not talking about biological life like plants and the fungus in between your toes. But, uh, <laughs> well, biologically, that's alive. So, <laughs> when, <laughs> You bring up this problem: Do plants have minds? Then you have to ask them as well. Yeah. Well, what about this fungus? Also. So, anyway, what other questions do you have?
2: Uh, yes. On uh, consciousness, you mentioned this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that AIDS consciousness is a primary consciousness that supposes, I guess, that there is also... Primary. Primary.
0: Yes. Primary.
2: So there is also a secondary. Yes. I guess. And maybe you have mentioned that yes last night, but I wasn't there. Right. Could you say a bit more about the primary and then secondary? Is primary consciousness, you mentioned it is a storehouse. Is it a storehouse for karma, or not at all, or...
0: Well, no, when I say there are primary and primary, correct, if you say primary, then there has to be secondary as well. Uh, I don't usually use the term secondary. The term that's most commonly used for the others are mental factors uh, or uh, subsidiary awarenesses. Um, they are these are what's found in the rest of the aggregates that's uh, the next three aggregates that's what we'll be speaking about uh in the uh upcoming lectures they qualify or assist the primary consciousness primary is like the uh well i don't want to get into the long uh, explanation of them that's will come but uh, the primary is like if you have a chandelier with a big light in the middle and a lot of little lights around it the consciousness is the big light and the other ones are the little ones around it that help it like concentration or interest or emotion you know various emotions and so on primary is just the main one that is uh, uh aware of the most basic essential nature of what one is cognizing or aware of. Sight, sound, smell, taste, physical sensation, or mental phenomenon. That's all. And the other two... I don't know, they're thrown in there. I'm not that terribly familiar with... uh, With the uh, two, you have them explained in uh, mind-only. And uh, in mind-only, foundation consciousness is not clear. It doesn't have decisive uh, cognition. It's underlying and just the you know, the basis on which uh, tendencies and habits and so on are imputed. But I don't know, maybe Lama can answer in the, or you can answer, in the Kargyu uh, system, Madhyamaka, when uh, when this foundation consciousness is uh, used. Does it, is it also aware of every object in the uh, cognition? Is it there and is it clear? It's neutral. Hmm? neutral. It's neutral. Right. It's neutral in the sense of not, uh, it's lungma den. It's not destructive or constructive, which means that it uh, takes on whatever um, ethical value the rest of the conscious, the cognition, has. It should be still focused on the object, I would imagine. But does it actually, is it nanglamangeba? is it uh, not certain about the object that's in the, the mind only school, the Chittamatra? Or is it Sema? Is it valid? I don't know either. I would tend to think that it is more um, underlying, or, you know, when you talk about clear light mind, at least in. The system that I'm more familiar with that is uh, underlying each moment of consciousness, but it's not manifest so it's there but it 's not really actively operating so I would imagine that foundation conscious that the foundation consciousness i don 't really know, and the uh, seventh consciousness is just aimed at foundation consciousness so I guess it's also aimed at its essential nature. But I don't really know. I would imagine it is, because it is what affects or stimulates it, you know, in each moment to give rise to uh, a mental appearance, a mental hologram. So those two should be, but again I'm guessing... Underlying each moment of cognition, and they are operating. But uh, whether or not they have, like cung de, cung de Ngā do they have tsundenga with the, uh, with the consciousness? That I don't know. Do they? Shi- are they also giving rise to the hologram? I don't know. Do they also focus on the same object? I don't think so. I don't think so. But these are more, you know, very technical details. Interesting, though, but I'm sorry, I don't have that knowledge. And I've not actually seen it explained in any of the texts that I've, the Tibetan texts that I've read, received teaching on. Anything else? What next?
2: One more? No, no. <laughs> well, Mike, <does> <laughs>
0: yes, good.
1: Groups or
2: aggregates.
0: Yeah? Right. The five aggregates are consciousness, which you can say is primary consciousness, forms of physical phenomenon, then distinguishing, sometimes called recognition, then uh, feeling which is referring to feeling a level of happiness or unhappiness or neutral. That's four. And number five is, I'm calling it, other affecting variables. Sometimes it other affecting, that affects things, variables, things that change. Sometimes you'll see that called volition, the aggregate of volition. Volition. And that is because whoever calls it that is uh, uh, using that to translate what I would translate as an urge. And uh, volition in English is not the same as urge, and it really doesn't fit the definition of that mental factor. But uh, urge is, uh, we'll get to that when we come there, but that is the uh, main thing that moves the whole cluster of the consciousness and the other mental factors to a specific object. And uh, when it is uh, under the influence of ignorance, then it's under the influence of karma, so it becomes compulsive. So the seventh consciousness just stimulates something to arise, and this urge compelling urge draws the whole you know, cluster to a specific object. So volition implies will and all sorts of other things. And that is considered the main factor in this aggregate of other affecting variables so that when you hear it called the aggregate of volition it's naming the whole cluster after what is the um, main uh, item in it. It's not a very accurate translation. Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, I've heard other translations, and I don't know which one there are two. Uh, you have two words which don't fit in the categories
0: either. right so this is this is important i'm not familiar with all the yeah. other translations of this what which ones I mean, are you thinking maybe, of
2: uh, well there's one that's perception form feelings perceptions um, formations and consciousness it was probably the first one which i think comes from tridumpa
0: right well uh, whoever they come from
2: and the other one is some uh samskaras Which is also the
0: fourth in that. Right. As I said, I'm not doing the... the Samskara Mm -hmm. is the Sanskrit word for what I'm translating as an affecting variable. Something that affects things. And when you hear uh, an aggregate of perception, as opposed to an aggregate of consciousness, Mm -hmm. that's probably what I'm calling distinguishing. Mm -hmm. And Unless you know the definitions of, you know, what, what is the aggregate, you know, what is the item that's there, then going by the English words or the Norwegian translations of them and the meanings of them in your own languages is extremely misleading. Formations, if it is if they're using that for karma, as opposed to samskaras, it's different, then formations should be forms of forms, I suppose. Otherwise, if you call it uh, formation, karmic formations, that would be volition, which is an urge. An urge, when it's under the influence of ignorance, is karma. So then they call it karmic. Formations.
2: The formations, form, feeling, perception, formation, consciousness, those categories, I think I'm pretty sure that comes from one of the first books that were published uh, by Trumpa. Right, there, so in, in that. Latest,
0: right, so that uh, translations set, formations would be these other affecting variables, and the formations would be because that they are thinking in terms of karmic formations which others translate as volition, which I translate as urge and it is described as the uh, main mental factor because it draws all the rest to the uh, with it to uh, the object. And that's how it, the names come about. Names are very, very difficult because everybody translates things differently. That's why you always have to go to the definitions. Without knowing the definition, you don't know what they're talking about. And then find something in your language that actually means what the definition is.
2: Well, I found that explanation a long time ago, maybe four years ago, when I read it first. Yeah. Very confusing. Yeah. I didn't Understand it. So right. i can tell you that I read it over and over again, but it never came. Kind of right. Well, we will
0: discuss in detail the other aggregates. Then you will understand why I translate it as distinguishing. I'm
2: starting to understand better. But the, yeah, yeah. That was our first, my first introduction
0: Right. to,
2: to the scandals.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. So. What other questions you have? Hmm. Hopefully, some. This is the question and answer session. <laughs> Hans Peter. Question, I mean, just to avoid the. if you have questions about something else, that's also fine. <laughs> question is perhaps more a clarification um, more of a what clarification yes because uh, you often hear about the two truths in Buddhism the relative and the absolute so I was wondering if you could say something about how can we understand your teachings how we can understand what your teachings yes now which I, I find my, my interpretation is that it's It's almost squarely on the relative level. Or would you disagree? That's sort of my... No, I'm speaking on the conventional level. Not speaking on the deepest level. So, how do we understand the two truths in terms of uh, what I'm speaking about? First of all, two truths. I don't want to go into a big lecture on this, but uh, the two, two truths, so... A little bit of self-control. Uh, the two truths are defined many, many, many different ways in each of the Indian tenet systems, and the different interpretations of each of the Indian tenet systems mm-hmm. in the by the different Indian authors, the different Tibetan authors, Tibetan schools. There's a whole bunch of that. And then even within one school, uh like Karma Kagyu, the two truths can be defined in one way on Sutra level, it can be defined in another way on uh, uh tantra level, defined in one way in Mahamudra, uh and so on. So there are many different uh ways of explaining it. In terms of what we are discussing here then usually the differentiation is made in terms of mental activity that uh, on the one side, we shouldn't say one side because they are inseparable, (laughs) non-dual, but uh, in any case, you have uh, the pair, if we want to uh, use a a word, of... uh, uh, on the side of of giving rise to a mental hologram so that is conventional truth of mental activity that there is what's called clarity and appearance so clarity is the giving rise to a mental hologram and appearance is the mental hologram what appears those two obviously are non-dual you can't have one without the other giving rise to an appearance, it has to be an appearance, obviously. Uh, so that is what's known in this system as conventional truth. And then deepest truth is the awareness sides. And the awareness side is, a uh, again, an inseparable pair of voidness and awareness. So when you speak about Voidness or emptiness. I mean, I always prefer the term voidness. It's uh, a little bit uh, clearer, actually. Emptiness implies that there is a container, like the glass is empty. And uh, it's not quite like that. There's not some solid container somewhere, and it's something is uh, missing inside of it. But uh, voidness, you know no such thing so when we speak about voidness here we're talking about voidness beyond words, beyond concepts that just is another way of referring to non-conceptual so that is a voidness an absence of uh, some impossible way of existing which would be in some category or box with a word Attached to it. That would be conceptual. That would be voidness that is expressed in words or expressed in categories. And so, if you want to describe voidness which is understood non conceptually, you'd have to say it's beyond words, beyond concepts. So, we shouldn't think that when we read, you know, voidness beyond words, beyond concepts, we're talking about some, you know, transcendental thing up in the sky not something like that. It's just another way of saying non-conceptual. Voidness understood non-conceptually, and that emptiness doesn't just exist on its own, but there is the awareness aspect of it. So that's the deepest truth of what's going on, is that there is an awareness which is basically not projecting impossible ways of existing dualistic you know appearances and you know by its nature I should say and uh, which itself doesn't exist in, as some sort of thing in a box so that's the deepest truth of the mental activity the mental activity is, Cognitive engagement, so that's the awareness aspect. And that awareness aspect doesn't have as an uh, innate or intrinsic feature of it grasping for true existence, which, remember, is giving rise to an appearance of true existence and believing it, taking it to correspond to reality. So then, what you have is... That's the deepest truth of what's going on. And you have the arising of appearance. And an appearance. It's the conventional side of what's going on. Conventional in the sense that uh, this is... Conventional is also be translated in many different ways. It's surface, something that hides something underneath, and so on. So if we look at it from the point of view, so that can be either pure or impure. When it is impure, then it uh, not only looks like our ordinary things, but appears to be truly existent, existent. When it's pure, then it doesn't appear to be truly existent and it is uh, usually in the form of mandalas and deities and these sort of things. So within conventional truth is pure and impure. So what you have is in this system, I hope I get it straight, is a uh, foundational deep awareness and foundational dividing awareness. And they are mixed together like milk and water. Very difficult to separate for us ordinary beings. And the analogy is used like uh, gold. And gold if it's pure gold won't tarnish but uh... so they always say you should test the teachings like gold so you scratch it to see about its uh, surface and burn it to see about uh... it's uh... something other quality maybe or something like that and then scratch it and if it is a an alloy in other words, a mixture of gold with some other metal, then the tarnish, there will be a black line. So that black line is not coming from outside. It's not really the gold itself, because the gold is pure, but it's an indication of the alloy of the other junk that's mixed with it. But that alloy, you can't really separate, like milk and water, the gold from the other metals that are uh, uh, mixed with it. So when we have our ordinary mental activity underlying what we have, which is this... uh, uh, Dividing consciousness. Dividing consciousness comes up after that moment of non-conceptual sensory cognition, non, then the next moment of non-conceptual mental cognition, then the first moment of conceptual cognition, which now you get an appearance of a conventional hold object. Then, it's also giving rise to an appearance of dualistic existence. And you have the grasping for that, that comes next. So that's the, the tarnish on the gold. It's an indication that there is ignorance mixed with it, basically. Mixed with the mental activity. So you can also speak of conventional truth is terms of what's appearing from the dividing foundational consciousness and deepest truth is what's appearing or what can appear from foundational deep awareness. You can also divide it that way as well. So when we talk about the two truths, you can speak about the two truths of something on the level of the operation of foundational dividing awareness, in which case that seventh awareness is causing that to give rise to, through a, a series of moments, a dualistic appearance that's tarnish, and mental hologram that arises. And the arising of it, that's conventional side, conventional truth side, the just actual awareness aspect, you know, without, just by its, per- its essential nature, and it is void of existing in some impossible way, void beyond, word, you know, understood non-conceptually, that has the deepest nature as well, within the sphere of uh, dividing consciousness. So, you have the two truths inseparable there. But then, also, if you look on the pure side from foundational deep awareness, that also has the two truths inseparably. Because there's also the arising of pure hologram, and the pure hologram, that's conventional side, and the awareness voidness side as well. So, on each of those, Sides, the foundational deep awareness and the foundational dividing awareness, they're the two truths, and the two of them together constitute two truths. So that's this system. This is why I said in the very beginning, I don't really want to bring in the Mahamudra and the Namshiyeshi explanation as well, but here it is. So that's brought into uh, our discussion as well. But this is sort of what, I mean, it fits together. The sutra presentation of just clarity and awareness is the basis for this. Without understanding that, you can't really uh, fit, you know, go and jump immediately into this Mahamudra and uh, Namshieshi explanation. But as far as, you know, I have been taught, that's what it seems to be. So it makes sense. And although Dharmakaya, you know, the you know w- what's coming from Dharmakaya are these appearances. Right? These are waves of the ocean. Dharmakaya being like the ocean. So whether it's a wave, a mental hologram of either just data or a uh, synthesized object Mentally synthesized object—it's still just mental hologram, right? You know, what is the stuff? You know, it's mind and uh, subtlest energy. You know, that gets into a whole other analysis of what are these mental holograms made out of. But usually, after the analysis, you say, "Well, it's made out of this subtlest energy or subtle energy," something like that. So both of these are the data, the mental hologram information of just the data you know, of the basic information, colored shapes and sounds momentary, you know, like that, and synthesized into a whole object that endures over time and also has other sensory information about it. Those are both what should I say? Waves of Dharmakaya. that's not a problem. So if you want to, uh, a Buddha wanting to interact with others obviously would need to uh, be able to uh, know conventional objects. So two truths. But for Buddha himself, Buddha himself, it's only foundational deep awareness your side. So, there's this distinction between what is for one's own purpose and what is for the purpose of others. For the purpose of others, you appear in various forms. Buddha doesn't have to appear in various forms, but to fulfill the purposes of others, Buddha appears in various forms. And, Obviously, to be able to communicate, you need language. But it becomes very interesting. (laughs) Pardon me for going on and on, but you don't seem to have many questions, so I have to fill out the time. Uh, (laughs) Do you ever wonder what language the Buddha is speaking in? Everybody can understand Buddha words in their own language so if that's the case what language is the Buddha speaking and that gives a well you can say <laughs> you know Magadha dialect of uh, ancient Indian languages but uh, that's a historical Buddha but if you think in terms of this Mahayana presentation then you'd have to say well That is indicating the distinction between this deep awareness side and this dividing consciousness side. The Buddhist side, you can't say that the Buddha is speaking in any language. Language, after all, is conceptually synthesized. But each person, that's why I was saying we had a question about quantum physics. I think that was here yesterday. And so each person will deflate, I think that's the word, deflate what they hear into their own language. It's not like quantum physics, that one person deflates it and that's it now, it's solid. So each person deflates it into their own language and they understand. Then the whole thing makes sense. Otherwise it's a mystery and... Buddhism shouldn't be a mystery. We you accept omniscient mind, then mental activity is capable of understanding anything. You had a question? Yeah,
2: uh, yeah I think so.
0: I hope that was understandable. Or was it just a lot of blah, blah, blah? I hope understandable. It's not so easy, but, uh, you know... Maybe this is a little bit of a of a hint of how to deal with all this material. It all fits together. Obviously, it has to all fit together. Yeah.
2: Um, my question is about something else.
0: So we can just
2: <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, I, I have a question about something else.
0: Please. Wonderful.
2: Uh, um, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that something about that compassion is static. That uh, what? Static.
0: Compassion is a static uh, quality. Compassion is a static quality? No, I didn't say that.
2: Okay, I, I thought you said something about it's compassion is uh, it's not something that comes
0: and goes, it's always there, it just changes. Oh. Something that is always there, but changes. Yeah. That's not static. If it changes, that means that it's not static. Static means doesn't change wrong word no this is the this is a very very important point because when we there are two variables that are mixed together in one word and these two variables are whether something lasts forever eternal or temporary and the other one is does it change or not change And our words, permanent and impermanent, have both meanings. That is a source of great confusion. Because in one context, they're using the words to speak about eternal versus temporary, and in another one, they're talking about static versus not static. Static versus changing. And if you apply the wrong meaning in another context in the incorrect, inappropriate context, you get very confused. So mental activity, an individual stream of mental activity, is eternal. So all the basic aspects, items, the five aggregates, they have no beginning. Now some of them so they all have no beginning whether we're talking about the constructive ones or positive ones like compassion or destructive ones like ignorance or anger and of course the mechanical ones as well like concentration and attention they have no beginning the mechanical ones concentration and attention etc they also have no end Buddhists have them as well how they have them, etc., that gets complicated, but uh, you can't say that a Buddha doesn't have concentration. So, uh, and the same thing with the positive ones, compassion. You can't say that a Buddha doesn't have compassion. So, those things have no end. But the destructive ones can have an end. That is a big difference. No beginning, but a possible end. They're not going to have an end if you don't do anything about it. But they could have an end if you apply the um, opposing forces. In other words, uh, they are based on not knowing. Ignorance is not knowing or knowing incorrectly. If that is replaced by knowing correctly, and that's there all the time, then you can't have knowing and not knowing at the same time. So then you can't have all the disturbing or negative mental factors, anger, greed, all these sort of things there. So they can have an end. But when we talk about these things having an end, there's a difference between the body having an end, which is that it's degenerating, you know, Falling apart moment to moment until finally, like a bottle of milk, it expires. Which is a very good analogy, by the way, for the body. That we all have a body like a bottle of milk. But and it has an expiration date, but we don't know it. But it will expire at some time. <laughs> and it's going bad, you know, moment to moment. So, the you know ignorance or, or anger aren't going to fall you know gradually weaken and fall apart, but they can be stopped, and the force of the tendency remember I said there are tendencies for these things because we don't have them all the time. these tendencies can be strengthened or weakened by uh various other type of opponents. There are uh, deepest opponents like the understanding of voidness and then there are uh, what's the word Um, I can't think of the word temporary opponents is a good word for it like love to counter anger so these work to a certain extent but they're not going to get rid of anger completely You know, somebody is really annoying you and instead of getting angry, if you really think about it, love, the wish for them to be happy, may they be, you know, they're, they're, you know, pain and and a real annoyance and acting terribly because they're unhappy. So love, may they be happy and then they'll stop bothering me. So it is logical that love counters anger. It's a good point. <laughs>
2: okay. Uh, I was just wondering, these tendencies uh, are are those part of the uh, karma?
0: Are those part of karma? Oh, that gets uh, as in everything complicated. The disturbing emotions are going to activate. I mean, there are some of them that will activate the karmic tendencies and then there are others which will accompany karma is referring to the mental factor i mean the the explana- there are two explanations of karma but the one that is used in karmakartyu system Madhyamaka, as far as i know is the one that is purely a mental urge so the mental urge it's not it's not action when it's translated as action, that's because the Tibetan word for karma, lay is the same colloquial word as the word for an action. It's not action. Action is uh, an imputation on all the different parts that are made up for it. You know, there's the basis of who it's aimed at, and there's the motivation, and there's the implementation of a method to, you know, actually... Um, do whatever it is that you, you're planning to do, and there's the finale. The person dies. So that's the action. That's an imputation on top of all of that. that you know, There's a specific person. There is intention. There is a motivating uh, um, emotion. There's the implementation of a method to kill them. And the finale, they actually die. All of that is the action. Karma isn't that. Karma is the urge and it's compulsive. That's the important point of it. It's the compelling urge that draws you into that and sustains it and would make you stop doing it. That's karma. The compulsiveness, the urge that brings you in that. So what will activate that for, you know, arising from the karmic seed is basically your experience happiness or unhappiness. You know, so I'm in a situation and I am feeling unhappy. You know, you're yelling or doing something that I don't like you know so my experience of it this is another mental factor that i don't like it it's unpleasant and that you know and there is this feeling of unhappiness and now i want to get rid of it that disturbing emotion that i'm making that unhappiness into something horrible that i have to get rid of rather than so what you know why should i feel happy all the time you know i don't like it so what nothing special I love that term, that comes from my teacher circum nothing special nothing special about it but if you make it into something oh this is so horrible then that triggers, that activates the karmic tendency then the urge will come up to, I'm going to yell back at you and it will be accompanied by anger so that's how it works So, that's when they say, you know, the source of samsara, you know, on the deepest level is ignorance or unawareness, but on the next level it's karma and delusions. So, it's this compulsive, going into compulsive behavior under the influence of the disturbing emotions, and underneath that, that's coming from ignorance. That me, me, me. Solid me, what am I experiencing over there, dualistic, and I don't like it. I'm unhappy, you know, this is not pleasant, this is not nice, and I don't feel happy about it, and I'm going to do something about it to get rid of it. Bam, that triggers karma, compulsive urge to actually then yell at you or do something terrible and it's accompanied by more anger. Well, karma works like that. It's very profound, actually, but has to be understood correctly. Otherwise you just think that karma means action. So then you would say, well, all I have to do is stop doing anything and then I'm free of karma. And that's, a, a, that's absurd. So karma can't be actions. But as I say, because it's the same Tibetan word colloquially for actions, it's translated like that. Look it up in the dictionary. Well, that's what the dictionary says. So there you have it. Confusion. So you have to go back to the definition. Okay? So... End of our questions section. Thank you. And uh, we'll continue after tea or coffee.